The time will come when a spacecraft carrying human beings will leave the Earth and set out on a voyage to distant planets, to remote worlds. Today, this may seem only an inciting fantasy, but the way to the stars is open. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Do 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 do. Oh yeah, baby, Coralove. Ah, <laughs> uh, I tell you what. When I was doing that little song, my yeah. friend Marco was uh, holding up some sugar for me for my coffee that he's making me. That's so nice. Was he confused about your little ditty? <laughs> I think he probably was confused about my little ditty. Yeah, <laughs> Sergey Korolov there, Jamie. The the way to the stars is open. Of course, he was talking about Sputnik at the time. He was talking about Sputnik. Do you think he? Do you think he was from Birmingham? He, I think he was from the equivalent place in in Russia. That that crinkling is well, my I, sugar going in my cup. See, by the way, <laughs> the reason I said it like that, Matt, is I was listening to War Pigs by the Mighty Sabbath. Oh earlier. yes. So it's kind of feels like it's been etched into my soul, that accent. I thought you were just trying to be me. Nah, you've lost it. I can't even detect a twang anymore. I was going to say you're so Southern, but now you're Western. Yeah, Jamie, it's been yeah. it's been a hard day, hasn't it? December the 20th, the 354th day. <laughs> yeah, it has been a, a, an interesting day. But, you know, it's very like uh, the universe, Matt, to throw these things out and then everything becomes okay again. Because here we are, moving on. Do you know why it's such a bad day? Why? Because it's the day that Carl Sagan died. Oh, are you serious? Yeah. It is December oh, the 20th. Well, that's why. It is why. Poor old Jamie. So, Matt, do you want to give, uh, give a little breakdown of what's happened to us yeah. today already? We were meeting Helen Sharman today for our, our yeah. end of year review. And Jamie got stuck in Brighton. And uh, luckily, I got stuck because there are no trains to London because of the flooding. Mm. Railways are flooded, motorways are flooded, which has completely st- stuffed the whole today's podcast, next week's podcast. Deniers? Yeah. Oh. Where are our global warming deniers at? I'd like to talk to them. Yeah, that's very annoying. They're just going to tell us it's winter. Right, Jamie, I'm only going to do one news story because we've got a great chat with the uh, Chandra people, haven't we, later on? Oh, we absolutely have. I'm really excited, actually, because that was that was a killer interview, wasn't it? All three of them were legends, weren't they? Well, five, including us. Yeah, there was five legends. Three of them absolutely. actual legends. Legends the lot. Yeah, really cool. Really cool interview. So hang on for that one. But... But another interview that just hasn't quite happened as well. I've I've been talking to Kate Isaacs. Remember Matt Taylor mentioned Kate Isaacs and the Chaos mission that she was in charge of. Well, she was she's a mission scientist for and um, uh, Julio had hooked us up, but we just haven't quite made oh. that work either. So we've been almost connected because I've got a couple of questions for her. But I'm going to talk about Chaos. I'm going to talk about Chaos. Let's do it because. Let's... Let's roll that out. Yeah, because this week in uh, French Guiana, in Kou, in Kourou, um, VS-23, which is a Soyuz, took off. And it was carrying a couple of satellites. The primary load was uh, Cosmo SkyMed, which is a 1.9-tonne Italian synthetic aperture radar Earth observation satellite. Damn. Damn. 
And that's obviously for military and civilian use. So it's a, a very yes. important Italian satellite, probably very expensive, because that uh, synthetic r- aperture radio stuff is radar stuff is pretty expensive. Anyway, not cheap. The second payload, a much smaller one, only 0.3 tons, so considerably smaller than the than the than the major payload, is Cheops, or C H E O P S, Cheops, and that was launched into a sun synchronous circular orbit 430 miles above our very heads it's definitely in my top three orbits <laughs> well yeah i, I believe it. well it, it means that the satellite can stay in the sunshine with its solar panels all the time you almost said it like liam gallagher then sunshine <laughs> <laughs> so yes so chaos the characterizing exoplanet satellite what do you think about that for an acronym, Jamie? Ugh, kind of bored of acronyms. <laughs> it's just like, God. Oh, come on. Where does it start? Where, where's your sense of acronym adventure? Where's my Christmas spirit? <laughs> so, yeah, so th- this is um, going to search for exoplanets. In fact, it's not really going to go to search for exoplanets. It's going to go through looking at the transit of known exoplanets with Ooh. ultra high precision and when when Ooh. and when they say high precision right this is a 12.6 inch or 32 centimeter Ritchie Chrétien telescope supplied by the University of Bern in Switzerland and that's been integrated onto a Spanish Airbus uh, platform and using, get this, Teledyne UK, E to V UK, uh, CCD chip is going to be doing all the business end. And it's going to measure signals, get this, 20 parts per million in six hours of integration Jeez. time. So 20 parts per million. Yeah. So if you imagine the transit method, when it, when a when a planet moves in front of its parent star, hmm. obviously that, that disk reduces the sunlight somewhat. So imagine if you had a planet that was 50% the radius of its parent star, it would reduce the sunlight by 25% because, of course, the surface area of a sphere has a squared um, component to it, so it's not 50-50. Yes, it, it does. 50%, 25%. So Earth's radius is 100 times smaller than the sun. So if you were looking at that from um, a very long way away, the sunlight would dip by 80 parts per million, or 0.008%. And Chaos is able to pick up a signal like that. That's how sensitive... This sensor is cooled to 233 Kelvin. God damn, that's a lot of Kelvins. Actually, it's not it's not that cold. Minus 40 degrees centigrade. That's not it's not excessive, is it? But but All right, uh, let's get you naked and put you in a four, minus 40 degree fridge. See you, how you get on. Do you know what? When I was a kid, Birmingham did go down to minus 35 once. <laughs> <laughs> did it? Yeah, it really did. <laughs> me. Yeah. No wonder you look like curries up there. Exactly. You've got to keep warm in, when you're away from the sea. When you're away from yeah. the sea. So what is Chaos all about? And it's actually quite a big deal because there's a gap in the data. There's a massive, huge gap 
in the data. So ever since that Nobel Prize winning discovery of an exoplanet around a, a normal star, we found and catalogued over four and a half thousand exoplanets. Exciting, That's isn't a lot. it? In our lifetime, Jamie. Um, that is a lot. But there We're is. We're not alone, Matt. Quite simply, we're not alone. Well, potentially, potentially. I, I personally think that we are alone in the galaxy and that, that gives us a very, very ominous um, responsibility, I think. But anyway, let, let's let's move on. We, we've got to keep it's this short, Jamie, because I've got to edit this goddamn thing down. So, um, <laughs> so <laughs> it, we've basically got a catalogue of exoplanets, but... Some, some, you'll see in a second that there's a bit of a problem. So if mm. you use the transit method, like the one I've just said, the minuscule dimming of the star as a planet passes in front, you can actually infer the radius of that object. Obviously, as I was saying, by the amount of light, that, by how much it dims, will roughly, well, not roughly, will actually give you the radius of that object. Now, one, yeah. that, that's one method. Another method... And there's, there's about 20 or 30 methods, by the way, but these are the two big ones. Radial velocity method is basically measuring how much the star is being pulled about by the orbiting planet. So the star gets pushed, pulled towards that planet and pushed away from that from us as the planet's going around. And you can measure that Doppler shift, basically the change in colour of the star, using unbelievably sensitive ground-based telescopes. Now, using that method, you can obviously work out the mass of the planet by how much it's pulling and pushing the star. But if you know the mass and the radius, now you have something really interesting, which is the density of the planet, i.e., is it gas? Is it rocky? Is it made of metal? Is it made of heavy metal? So that's the tantalising bit of information. You can even start to infer whether there's an atmosphere so, well, goddamn! It turns that turns out that Cheops is pretty amazing. Well, well, you imagine. So it's you've got these two ranges now. You've got a bunch of planets that were found with the radial velocity, and a bunch of planets that have been found with the transiting method. But there's not much of an overlap, and so we don't we we know the mass of some and the radius of others, but not the density. And it's the density that's the really exciting bit. So. The uh, Cheops basically has been built to increase the sample of objects that have the density measurement. So there's a list of 400 to 500 targets that it's going to look at over the next three and a half years. And so, wow. see, these are all exoplanets that are about super Earth size, uh, super Earth planets. So Neptune sized right the way down to the size of Earth. And that just simply can't be achieved from the ground. So this is yet another... Because all the other major um, satellite-style, you know, in-space telescopes have been doing this transiting method, like Kepler, for example. But it's the ground-based ones. Just a question, just a question yeah. for you. Sorry to interrupt. Do you know who heads up the, uh, the Cheops mission for ESA? Well... Uh, it's the, the sort of science team we talked about. I, I mentioned earlier the Nobel Prize. It's, it's actually Didier Queloz, who was one of oh, the... Oh, because I was, I was thinking about a different name. See, I was going to warn you about 
this name so that you so that we didn't ruin the podcast but uh, <laughs> no i'm not going to ruin it for anyone and and because it, it sells itself it, it? it does sell itself but we'll get there so didier kalos is the uh yes is the science uh team chaired by didier kalos and um he has this thing called the guaranteed obs- observing program which means mm. that uh, there's it, 80% of the time is going to be used on this, which is going to be looking at this list of targets and they're going to be getting information about those targets. There's also yes. 20% observing time that's going to be handed out from approval. So you can submit a proposal and say, this is what I want to use KOPS for. So people have already submitted things like they want to observe hot, some hot Jupiters, HD yes. 17156B. It doesn't. Other sort of stuff you could do is look at planets that are going around rapidly rotating stars, planet material around white dwarfs, and searching for even things like exocomets and stuff like that. So that's the, the, the other 20% of the time. So it's, it's going to be doing other sort of things. So what's exciting about I this? I love it. Is is it's filling? It's just filling in all the gaps of of what's come before. So um, Hubble and MOST, which was a Canadian telescope, and Spitzer and Plato will become well. So t- NASA have launched TESS, and ESA are going to be doing a, a, another large exoplanet hunter called Plato in twenty twenty six. But yeah. the good thing about Chaos is it will start to look at a load of, a bunch of planets and say. This one's going to be interesting to look at. And, of course, then James Webb Telescope can... Oh, yeah, ja- lest we forget. The stress. James Webb Telescope is then going to be able to look at those things to look even closer at the atmosphere. So KOPS will come up with a really good list of JWST targets. And this is what Professor Didier Quelos said about that. Use a smaller telescope to identify and then a bigger telescope to understand. Although, do you know what? I don't think he is Spanish. I think he's Swiss. I <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Apologies. Yeah. really does. So, That's yes. Genius. Do you want to do the, the, the next quote, Jamie, from the uh, Director yeah. of Physics at the Institute of the University of Bern? I absolutely do. When we wanted to test this in the lab, we didn't find a single light source in the world that was stable to this precision to allow us to test our telescope. So we had to build one. And what what was this professor's name? Professor Dr. Willie Benz. Awesome. I think we need to... I mean, say no more. We need to move on. It's just too easy. We need to move on. I think it's brilliant. Something it's absolutely brilliant. I wish I had a friend with that name. Maybe I do. You do. You do have a friend, I'm sure. I'm sure Dr. Willie Benz is already your friend. Jamie, on yeah. that on that flight were 2,748 children's drawings of the universe that were oh, wow. engraved on two titanium plaques. But I noticed that 79 of those drawings were made in the UK. Get in, UK. So, yeah, that's a pretty cute little thing, isn't it? That is cute. Bless them. Love that. Jamie, shall we uh, go straight to our... I'm going to leave talking about Teledyne E to V for another time because that is an interesting company. 
But it really is. So we should definitely not pass it under the rug. We will get yeah, it out we'll once get it again. Out. I've written, but for now, I've written it. I think we need to get the Chandra bunch up. Yeah, so they've got a book called Light from the Void. Now, can I just say, I haven't seen this book yet, but I am drooling over it looking at it on Amazon. So there's still shopping time, isn't there, Matt, today? Yeah. Yeah, there is. Get your stocking fillers in. This is a huge one. Like from the a stunning collection of photographs from the Chanda X-ray Observatory, because it's been around now for twenty years. Mental, eh? That's a mental. So this is Kimberly Arcand, Megan Watsk, and uh, astrophysicist Grant Tremblay. Grant and what a lovely Tremblay. bunch they were, as you will hear. They, let's roll the tape. Let's roll it. A cootie. The interplanetary podcast putting the ace. Back into space. Sure. My name is Kim Arcand, and I am the visualization lead for the Chandra X Observatory. I've been working for Chandra for a little over 20 years. Uh, I think I'm going to hit 22 years soon. And it's been a pretty wild ride. I started out um, back in 1998, so about a year before Chandra was launched. And it was incredibly exciting to be part of a mission as it's getting ready to launch. There's so much excitement and energy. It's just a fantastic time to join a team. Uh, Megan. So I am the press officer for the Chandra X-ray Observatory, and I'm not quite as senior uh, with Chandra as Kim is, but I'm almost to 20 years, so I've been here for quite a while. Um, and uh, my background is in an undergraduate degree in astrophysics, and then I went to graduate school for science journalism. So my role is really to translate the results from the telescope that the scientists find and put it into language that hopefully non-experts and other people can understand. Um, and like I said, I've been, been been doing this for quite some time and it's been it's been fun to do it all these years. And Grant. Hey friends, I'm Grant Tremblay. I'm an astrophysicist at the Center for Astrophysics, Harvard and Smithsonian. And I've worked for the past three years on the Chandra Flight Operations Team. And I'm also the head of the Lynx X-ray Observatory Science Support Office, which if you ask me about later, I'll get a pay raise. So I'm, you know, hoping. <laughs> uh, yeah, so We've previous, got your background. <laughs> yeah, right. Prior to coming to Chandra three years ago, I was a NASA Einstein fellow at Yale University. And prior to that, I was an astronomer at the European Southern Observatory. So we operated um, some of Europe's largest telescopes in Chile, namely the Very Large Telescope. Um, and prior to that, I did uh, most of my PhD was done at the Space Telescope Science Institute, which is the operational heart of the Hubble Space Telescope. So I've jumped around telescopes and Chandra remains my favorite. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, I, I have to say Ch Chandra is definitely one of my favorites as well. We uh, ever since we spoke to, uh, I'm assuming you know, you all know Jonathan McDowell. We, we've, yes. yeah, yeah, and, yeah. yeah he, he, and he was he was so great, and I absolutely I absolutely love Chandra. In fact, I'm going to start with 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 a question of my own, which is, I've got a favourite picture from Chandra, which I actually don't know whether it's in this book. So just the reason why we're interviewing us is because you've got a book called The Light from the Void, and uh, it's a collection of uh, all the photographs from Chandra X-ray Observatory, and um, my favorite picture, and I actually don't know whether it's in the book, is from the Perseus cluster, and it's the lowest note ever to be recorded in the in the universe. Uh, what is, in, in order, I guess, in, in order again, Kim, Meg, Grant, what's your favorite picture of, of, the, of the book, if you have one? And you, you're allowed to have more than one choice as well. 
So we're so happy that you love Chandra. That's fantastic to hear. And yes, actually, Perseus is in the book. So that's fantastic. Um, I think the the story you're talking about where the pitch of those sound waves translates into 57 octaves below middle C. So that was a pretty exciting result. But if I had to pick my favorite image, and it's really hard, it's like I'm trying to pick a favorite child, um, I would probably say Cassiopeia A. It's definitely really high rank for me. It's the very first object that we released from Chandra. Um, so the, it's called the first light because it was like the official uh, first light image of the observatory. And it is an exploded star about 11,000 light years away from us. And within the first you know, hour of observation from Chandra, there was this incredible scientific result of seeing the, the location of the neutron star, that leftover core from when the star exploded. So right away, Chandra was working beautifully. And over the past 20 years, we've taken more and more data of this just fantastic, gorgeous object, this stellar supernova remnants. And now we have millions of seconds worth of data and um, we can resolve it so beautifully and it's in the book and it's incredible. Fantastic. I mean, that that it's, how does that happen? Do you actually sit in front of computer screens as the data rolls in and you actually see that image form or is it, or is it a slightly more tedious process than that? It's a little more tedious than that. So um, the data is downloaded essentially like every eight hours or so from the telescope. So you're not going to see it literally populate live on your screen in real time. Um, but once you do get the data, you essentially have to process it to make the visual representation of the object. So these are not giant space selfies. Uh, scientists have to work to get the visual representations. And that's part of what we get to do at Chandra is help create these really gorgeous images of the high energy universe that... We all get to understand and love. Kim, you talking about Perseus there just made me think of our heavy metal listeners who are, I'm sure are going to be writing in asking if they can play that low note on their guitar, but I, I'm, I'm sure that's not possible <laughs> yet, right? It's a heck of a bass note. <laughs> it's quite loud as well, I seem to remember. <laughs> There's a lot of energy. It's a B flat, 57 octaves below middle C, as Kim said. Wow. wow. Okay, that's okay, the challenge. That's the challenge. <laughs> it is a challenge so uh meg what was your um what was your favorite if you if you've got one i know it's like yeah it's hard like kim said it's it's hard to pick but i think one of my absolute favorites has always been um the the portrait we have of the center of the milky way galaxy and buried inside the chandra data it's this beautiful mosaic i think of of chandra observations pieced together stitched together um to show sort of the central region of our galactic center, which is about, we're about 26,000 light years away from the galactic center. So we're trillions of miles away from the center of the galaxy, which some people kind of assume we're in this middle, but sort of like the solar system, we're not. We're kind of about two thirds of the way out, but we can use Chandra to, to penetrate all the dust and gas in between and get a, a really beautiful high energy view of what's going on at the center of our galaxy. And there's a supermassive black hole there with a astronomers have named Sagittarius A star. And though, even though we can't resolve that because it's so tiny, we can see the effects of what this black hole is doing. It, it, it occasionally burps, it occasionally throws stuff out, it is influencing how stars are forming and all sorts of stuff. Um, so I, I think it's a beautiful image and I just think it's a very fascinating um, accomplishment that humanity has figured out a way to, to watch a black hole trillions of miles away uh, in our own galaxy. So cool. Yeah, super exciting stuff. And Grant, got any favourites? 
Sure. Two really quick answers. Um, one is not just Perseus, but what Perseus represents. This is really Chandra listening to the great symphony of the cosmos. It's almost like quite literally listening to a musical note, of we, as we've been talking about. Perseus is a cluster of galaxies. And like many of the cluster of clusters that Chandra has observed, we see these shocks and ripples and buoyant bubbles rising through this hot atmosphere of plasma that pervades clusters of galaxies. And the black, the supermassive black hole at the center of the central galaxy in this cluster is literally like plucking a string. It's playing a musical note into this atmosphere. And the thing to, to remember about this is that the scale of the supermassive black hole that's actually playing this musical note uh, versus the scale over which this, this musical note is being played is equivalent to the size of a grape relative to the size of an earth, right? Uh, so yeah, so it's extraordinary. So uh, this is something called black hole feedback. It's something that I work on scientifically, so it's one of my favorites. But also I want to mention the bullet cluster. I think this is one of the most profound results that come out of Chandra. And it's what's so exquisite about it is that you, you transform our understanding of physics just from one image, uh, because this was one of the truly great pieces of observational evidence in support of the existence of dark matter. So how do, that is how, insane. Yeah, how, how does it support the existence of dark matter? What what was it about the image that that's so compelling? The bullet cluster is one of the most energetic events that we've ever seen in the universe. This is a collision of two of the largest virialized structures in the universe. So two clusters of galaxies that are slamming into one another. It's this slow motion train wreck on, on truly, truly cosmic scales. And what's happening is that the, the gas or the luminous universe in this cluster is being slingshotted ahead of the dark matter or the dark component of this object's mass. And so in the, in the book, we, we have color coded the actual gas, which Chandra observes, and the dark matter, which we can map through something called strong lensing. And the two are offset from one another. It's an absolutely exquisite result. If you get the book, please open it up to the the bullet cluster page and just and just read the caption and and awe at what a transformational result this is. I genuinely can't wait to get my hands on this book. This is this is so cool. I, actually, on a slight tangent, were any of you actually there to see the launch? No, I was back home doing my work. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I was in 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 ninth grade in uh, the just starting high school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean it's a long time ago, isn't it? So do do any of the astronauts? Because I've actually met Katie Coleman. She was she was actually on that shuttle flight, wasn't she? That took Chandra up. She was. Are there any of those astronauts still involved with the project? Do that? Do you ever get to speak to them? And they they show an interest. We, we do. saw last week, in yeah. fact, didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> yep, actually, um, Katie Coleman specifically and Eileen Collins, I think, are probably the two astronauts that I get to talk with the most. I've seen both of them a couple times this year. Um, because it was the 20th anniversary of Chandra this year, we had a lot of events, um, fun talks and, and symposiums and that sort of thing. And uh, both Eileen and Katie were at a couple of those events. And um, the rest of the crew, I think, the last time I saw all of them it's been quite a while maybe it was at the 10-year anniversary um, but I will say working with such a dedicated crew of astronauts has been probably one of the the professional highlights of my life they're just really dedicated brilliant people who are absolutely dedicated to making sure we have what we need to be able to understand the universe and you know essentially risk their lives to help put Chandra up in space so they, they get all of the respect from us, and, and we're just huge fans to this day. And just to add, Eileen Collins, who was, as you probably know, the first female shuttle commander ever, 
um, she wrote an introduction for the book. So you can get some of her perspective on Chandra and her own words uh, in the book. But I think that they have just been extremely supportive of the mission, even after launch, when technically their job was done. Um, but they have gone above and beyond, you know, helping talk about Chandra, promote it, and do whatever. They're really so supportive whenever they have the opportunity. And these are very busy people. So we appreciate um, whenever they can spare some time in and talk about Chandra, which they do um, quite regularly. Yeah, all of all of the astronauts are really part of the Chandra family. Um, Commander Collins, uh, Katie Coleman, Steve Hawley were all in in Cambridge or in Boston with us to celebrate at the 20th anniversary conference last week, and they are just part of the family. They were just hanging out and talking to people and giving hugs and taking selfies, and and they love this mission as much as we do. So, talking of the mission, could you? Maybe just give us an insight into how observatory observatories like Chandra actually work, and and feel free to get geeky because you know we know our listeners, and they're a clever bunch. Sure. Well, I mean, I could just start with some of the basics. Chandra is, of course, a telescope that looks at X-rays, so it has a very different system of mirrors. There, these four um, nested, like barrel-shaped mirrors, that are very, very sensitive, uh, and they uh, the the X-rays are very energetic. So they strike the insides of those hollow shells, and then they're focused down onto the detectors uh, and optical bench. It's like uh, I think nine point two meters. So depending on like which of the detectors is used, we can get these really detailed striking images, or we can get spectra of that that astronomical source that that the researchers are trying to study and analyze. Wow. And and just to pick up from there, the data, as Kim said, um, since the telescope's in space, we don't get it immediately. It is sent via what's called the deep space network that goes from, there's a series of three radio dishes in California, Australia, and Spain. And so at any given time, one of those dishes is pointing in the right direction. And they, we download the data from there, it goes through the network and ends up at the um, Chandra Science Center in Cambridge, well now, in Massachusetts. Um, and from there, it's you know so there's some uh, processing that's done sort of on a certain level, and then the data is delivered to the scientist who requested that observation. So one, really quickly, just so you understand, scientists around the world um, propose uh, that they wanna look at a certain object for a certain length of time, they give a justification why they think it'd be worth chander time because it's precious stuff. Um, and then there's it's decided through a peer review process and then that uh, it gets planned through the mission. So uh, it, it's about, a, it's a sort of a year long process um, and observations are taken and then those data belong to the scientist until he or she um, publishes it and then it goes into a public archive um, so after about a year, no matter what. Is, is, is Chandra capable of doing a quick look at something? So if if something extraordinary happens somewhere in the universe, you're able to do one of those quick points and and, and go, well, let's have a look at that very special relatively object. Relatively quickly. Yeah, relatively quickly. It can't, it can't stop and slew within seconds like some telescopes can. But if there is a justification, like something really exciting is happening, they will interrupt the scheduled programming, so to speak, and they will um, move Chandra to point at that Phenomenon, but again, there has to be a really good scientific reason, and there's a process, there's a series of of, of uh, procedures that sort of allow for that to happen um, if it's justified. Why is it in such a bizarre orbit? 
Yeah, so so Chandra is in a highly elliptical orbit around the Earth at its greatest distance at apogee from the Earth. Uh, it's about a third of the way to the moon, so about 166,000 kilometers. Um, and it takes about 65 hours for Chandra to actually circle the Earth in this highly, highly elliptical orbit. So like like Kim and Megan said, we talked to Chandra through the Deep Space Network three times per day. I'm actually on flight operations duty today as we speak. And so we had a, a call, so-called call-up where we talked to Chandra uh, earlier this morning. We'll have another one in a few hours. So roughly once every eight hours, we, we um, have a telemetry uplink with Chandra. We download the data. We upload new commands for the next several days of observations. Um, and one of the reasons it's in such a, a, a high orbit is that it, in order to be most efficient, Chandra needs to fly above the so-called Van Allen radiation belts of the Earth. So the Earth uh, has a, a giant magnet, ma magnetic dynamo um, from our molten core. Uh, so we actually have a reasonably strong magnetic field. That traps a lot of high energy, uh, energy protons and electrons from the sun, so-called cosmic rays. And that ends up creating a high radiation environment in the, in the so-called rad zone around the Earth, which goes out to about six Earth radii. So Chandra is able to fly above it thanks to its highly elliptical orbit. Uh, and observe the X-ray universe uh, with a much, much lower background than you'd otherwise have in low Earth orbit. So I might just add a few like fun bits and pieces in the 20 years that Chandra has been traveling, if you will. Mm -hmm. It's moved about 2.4 billion kilometers. We've collected about 23 trillion bytes of data, um, about 2,700 trips around the Earth. We've uploaded uh, 3.6 million lines of code to operate it. So it's a pretty incredible feat of science and engineering and technology to have this observatory functioning so well uh, a third of the way to the moon 20 years later. So I'm guessing the kind of hard drives you guys have, you can't buy on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, probably not, you know, these were, I mean, this is technology. The other the interesting thing is it's, this is technology from the 90s. I mean, this thing was launched in 1999. So uh, they would probably, I don't know the comparison off the top of my head, but, you know, something that you're, your, your, you know, kids would laugh at if you said you wanted to have that as far as memory and stuff. It's, it's not, yeah. but it's performing incredibly well and it does the job. And without bringing the tone down, how long can it go on for potentially? Good question. Um, there's no finite, uh, there's no what they call expendables on board. In other words, it's not going to run out of fuel. So, I mean, there's, it, unlike some other telescopes in space that need coolant or a certain, you know, amount of, um, material on board that will run out. We don't have that problem. Um, so there's really no fixed answer for that. I mean, there's people are hopeful it can run for, for years to come. Uh, it's not, but it's just not quite clear what that will be. I mean, as Grant will, I'm sure happily talk about, you know, we hope that Chandra will last until we have another successor, which would be the Lynx Observatory uh, on the NASA, on the NASA schedule. Um, but, you know, it's something, it's a piece of hardware out in space in a, you know, kind of harsh environment. So it's doing so. We just knock on wood all the time, I guess, in the most unsightly. That makes me happy. I like, I like that. that answer. <laughs> For you, what have been the sort of standout discoveries? I guess we'll take it in turns again. What have been the, the, the sort of standout discoveries that Chandra has made that, that really stood out for you? I think I would just say that 
instead of mentioning specific standouts, maybe just sort of the general standouts. I mm -hmm. mean, for me, the fact that we can use Chandra to look at exoplanet systems and study the host stars, for example. You know, exoplanets weren't really a thing when Chandra was being built. Chandra's mirrors were already done by the time uh, Didier Quelloz's paper first came out in 1996, I think that was. Um, so, you know, 20 years later, the fact that you can use this telescope to understand the host stars and look at the potential habitability of such systems just blows my mind. And the fact that you can use Chandra to run concurrent campaigns on, you know, the study of uh, the black hole in M87, for example, that was so famous this year from the Event Horizon Telescope, um, multi-messenger astronomy. I mean, all these areas that the technology now is huge and that you can still use Chandra to be able to understand these fundamental things is just, to me, it blows my mind every day. Incredible. It's incredible. We've we've heard one already, but is there another sort of specific discovery that really kind of the the cream on top of 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 what has has been an incredible space mission? Again, it's not super specific, but I guess I would just say um, all of the Chandra observations of black holes. And when, again, when Chandra was launched, black holes were you know they certainly were theoretically viable, and there was some observational evidence for it. But Chandra has been a black hole hunter, um, as you probably know. Black holes come in different sizes small, large, and probably medium, though we're still trying to figure out that. Um, and so Chandra has found out so much about black holes, whether it's how they behave, how big they are, how fast they spin. Um, and so it's really, I think, is largely responsible for bringing black holes out of science fiction and into science reality for, for most people. So I, I think that it's not one specific result on black holes, it's just sort of that area I think has been phenomenally exciting and, and important in our understanding of the universe. Yeah, definitely. Ch Chandra has enabled this cascade of paradigm shifts, you know, across all of our understanding of the universe. My personal favorite is in, in the, the multitude of ways in which Chandra has revolutionized our understanding of clusters of galaxies. So clusters of galaxies are the largest virialized or gravitationally bound objects in the universe. And they're the great archivists or historians of the universe. And to use a little bit of a geek term here, that's because their assembly and growth history remains linear over the entire age of the universe. This is not the case for galaxies which crash together and erase initial conditions. Galaxy clusters sort of maintain this memory of the uh, assembly history and the growth and the evolution of the universe itself. And so Chandra has been able to observe galaxy clusters and do something called cluster cosmology, which is to quite literally um, tap at the really fundamental laws of nature, um, things like dark energy, uh, dark matter, um, the accelerated expansion of the universe, um, the, the amplitude of, of the so-called mass power spectrum. Um, and so by observing galaxy cr clusters across a range of cosmic time, because don't forget, looking, looking deeper into space is equivalent to looking deeper in, into the past, right? So Chandra really is a time machine um, because it looks very deep into space and therefore very deep into the history of the universe, um, many, many billions of years in the past. And we can observe these great archivists as they sort of record the assembly history of the universe itself. It's my favorite Chandra result overall. Grant, has it got a uh, flux capacitor? It, it doesn't have a flux capacitor, but we're definitely putting one on the Lynx X-ray. <laughs> that would make me happy. So, you know, I, I want to talk about the structure of the book a tiny bit, because I know that uh, obviously the images are the, are, the, are the big bang for your buck, but, but there's also some 
uh, great text next to each image so people can really learn from this book, right? Yes, that was the idea. I mean, I kind of look at this book as a real compendium of some of Chander's greatest hits. I mean, the visuals, I think, are incredibly striking. Um, and that's a biased view of that, of course. Um, we make those visuals, but um, the text is really, really important to being able to tell the story, right? Just like in an art museum, you can look at a piece of art and you can get a sense of whether you like it or not, or whether you think it's beautiful or not. But then as soon as you understand a little bit more about the artwork, what it represents, or perhaps like what the artist intended, then you have a better understanding of it. And then you also tend to have a better appreciation for it as well. And we find the same thing with images and astronomy. You can look at them and appreciate them aesthetically, but when you understand what's going on, your aesthetic appreciation of those images actually goes up as well as your comprehension. And so this coffee book really is like a, a way to be able to experience some of those visual pleasures of that, the high energy universe, but also get an understanding of these incredible objects, black holes, exploding stars, clusters of galaxies, these scales of which just sort of blow your mind. And I, I want to quickly jump in before Megan, because I, I want to give a shout out to my two colleagues, Megan and Kim and their teams, because a lot of this book is not just a celebration of Chandra, but a celebration of Chandra's exquisite education and public outreach team, um, which is led by Megan and Kim and a lot of other people who are mentioned in the back of the book. Um, it, it Science is, is one thing, but inspiring kids to go into science is, is an equally important thing. And as a kid, I had um, some of the early Chandra Press results when I was, you know, in early high school. I, you know, was a dork and cut out, you know, pictures from Astronomy Magazine and I pasted them on my wall. And uh, a lot of those pictures were from the very early Chandra results on Cassiopeia and Perseus and all those early press releases, some of which are in the book. And it, it's such a pleasure to have been inspired by the work that this team has done as a kid and then actually get to operate the mission or, or help operate the mission as, as a, you know, an adult. Oh, I didn't know wow. that. That is a Grants after a grants after a Christmas present. Yeah, has managed to simultaneously compliment us, and then now I feel super old, Grant. You know, <laughs> I mean, that wasn't the implication, but I know. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. Um, well, if I'm going to date myself a little more, um, I wanted to say this. As Kim said, it's kind of a, a greatest hits, or it, you know, in my mind, it's like a mixtape. The greatest hits, you know, if you guys remember cassettes um, mm -hmm. of, of the things that we've done or the telescope has done for the past twenty years, and uh, the text. I think is important in the sense that, um, you know, some of Chandra's images can almost, they're beautiful, but they can also seem look a little abstract if you're not an expert or you, you know what you're looking at. So um, my favorite thing is when you manage to uh, teach someone something or inform them without them actually realizing you're doing it. So hopefully um, the text is, is something that enhances your um, experience when looking at the images and you learn a little something even without trying. So that was our, our goal for... Well this stuff. I tell you what, you don't just have to take our word for it and your word for it, because I'm currently, guys, looking at the reviews on Amazon. <laughs> um, other bookshops online are available, um, but let me just read you some of the uh, some of the comments. Great coffee table book, spectacular pictures of our universe, getting smaller all the time. A must read for every executive, inspiration for finding new markets in the void. Okay. Uh, beautifully detailed uh, photos, wonderful book for home or classroom use, something for everyone within this book. Uh, so guys, Christmas is coming. Uh, what about that for a stocking filler? You know what I mean? I, I, I have to say, I'm actually looking at my bookshelf and I'm with Grant. I've is actually, there a gap? I, I've actually got a, a Kim and Meg book 
uh, Light, one of your previous books, and it's an absolute, it's a fab read as well. It's a really good book. So I know that your books are very, very high quality. Uh, I've got one last question for you, which I, which I think you may or may not be able to answer. Is there a science hero from your past that you would love to bring back to life so that they could see the sort of pictures from this book and be amazed and astounded by it? Oh, well, first I have to say thank you. Um, we, Meg and I, loved working on our other light book, so that is really, really nice to hear. Um, and if I had to bring back a science hero, honestly, I would bring back my my ninth grade science teacher, Mr. Kniff. He is now passed, oh. um, but he was really the inspiration for me. And at a time when there weren't a lot of girls being encouraged to go into science and technology fields. He just never blinked when I brought these crazy ideas to him and wanted to have fun and just play in science class and just do whatever my mind was leading me to do. He was just always super, super supportive. So I would love for him to be able to see some of this work today. Oh, that's very cool. Um, and there's not a one particular person I would bring back, though I'd love to bring back um, any woman who worked on science and was discouraged from previous epochs to come and see that, you know, um, Chandra, which is a wonderful observatory led by both men and women. Um, and it was created by so many people, but there currently we have a female director. It's the first of, um, ever for a NASA so-called great observatory, Belinda Wilkes. We also have many, many senior women running, uh, various important groups at Chandra and it's not perfect yet, but I think that Chandra represents, um, one of the best, uh, you know, as far as astrophysical observatories with the semblance of, of you know, where we want to go as far as representation. Um, and I hope that continues. And I, I wish that some of those women who were discouraged in previous generations could be around to see it today. Um, is there somewhere that you would recommend uh, like an online resource for anyone who's inspired to take uh, some direction into the path that you guys have gone into. Is there anywhere anyone can go to get more advice? Well, we actually run a blog on the Chander website, so chander.si.edu. And then if you go over to our blog, uh, we actually have profiles of a number of people uh, that have worked on the mission or worked on some part of the mission um, and sort of like career profiles. So as like a very, very basic starting point, I could recommend that at least to uh, take a quick peek in and see all of the various types of work that is involved in running a telescope like Chandra. It's not just astrophysicists, it's engineers, it's technologists, it's administrators, it's program developers, it's programmers. It's There's a whole list of people that are required to make something like Chandra, as beautiful as it is, run every day. Um, so I think look at some of that would be helpful that's really helpful actually thank you and, and and as matt and me often say you don't have to get triple a stars in mathematics and physics to work in the industry right, right? absolutely yep that's a really that, important thing and and sort of which is good because god god knows we haven't got them <laughs> well and, and and just on a personal note this is megan i mean the one thing that i encourage people especially when i talk to school groups and stuff is to realize that there are so many professions that are tied to science that maybe aren't what you think of as being, quote, a scientist. Um, you know, as Kim mentioned, there's a long list of people who work on Chandra. That also includes people like artists, writers like me. There's so many ways to to be involved with science. And I, honestly, I didn't know the career I had even existed when I was an undergraduate. So, I mean, the, if you love something, if you're interested in it, um, try not to be discouraged. And I, my only advice to people would be to continue to pursue what, it, what interests you and 
And even if it doesn't seem like there's a fit for you out there, there might very well be. You just might not know about it yet. Absolutely. Don't awesome. let anyone ever tell you that you can't be a scientist. It, you can be a scientist, right? If so, if you have the passion and curiosity, um, that's that's so much more important than than you know so-called you know classic book smarts or acing maths in school, right? Um, Science isn't really about because here's a big secret, right? As a scientist, it's not really about becoming more right. It's about becoming less wrong over time. And what that takes is curiosity and and drive. Um, but it it doesn't really take, you know, I didn't ace math as a kid, right? You know, I ended up getting my PhD in astrophysics and I I didn't think I could, but but what it really took was a, a passion that's 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 I think in in all of us. Um, not necessarily for astrophysics, but but for you know understanding our world as a whole. You know, Matt's always told me that I can't be a male model, and um, well, I, I, I'm determined <laughs> to prove him wrong. All three of you have done some fantastic books, and that just that inspiration for people to see that there's lots of different types of people doing lots of different things in science, and 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 that science and space is so exciting, and to try and inspire people. Jamie and I get the occasional email where someone said that they've they've switched to doing a master's in space or a phd in space because they listen to the podcast and yeah. for us that genuinely that is the is best the thing most, ever wow. it's the best thing ever it beats everything so uh, you know you three have done a lot more than jamie and i so i'm i'm sure you feel warmed every time you see yeah so like thank that you yourselves. that's fantastic is there is there anything really special about chandra that that um, you think's going to sort of live on for longer than the space mission Well, itself. again, I'm biased, but I think the the images, the visual representations of what Chandra has gotten to look at will definitely live on for a long time. We've seen them sort of percolate out into culture in the most interesting ways from being on TV shows and jewelry to being on bed sheets and in kids' classrooms, you know. So for me, that is a very, very rewarding thing to see. And I would say that it's the it, the data will live on far long far after Chandra is not no longer taking observations. I mean, the data are already available in the public archive, and I know scientists will continue um, to to use those data even if it's the telescope is no longer working. Uh, and that's something that will never go away. Is, you know, the, that data those data will be there. Uh, and again, um, we hope that Chandra's legacy ultimately will be. Um, you know, sort of being the forebearer to the next generation of X-ray telescopes. We're just getting started. There's so much more to explore, and Chandra is fantastic, but we always want to see the next thing and what else we are have been missing so far. So um, as Grant mentioned, the Lynx Observatory is, is, is sort of on deck, and so we are hoping that that moves forward. So I think Chandra, hopefully, will its legacy will involve justifying and, and why we need to continue to explore the universe in this way. Ch Chandra, without bias, I mean, I genuinely mean this without bias, Chandra is one of the great triumphs of science. Its legacy will li will last quite literally for centuries in, in terms of how it shaped our understanding of the universe. Um, it is a true great observatory, so it's formally one of NASA's four great observatories, but great observatory isn't just a reference to four specific missions. It's this, it's a vision for long-lived, powerful, flexible discovery platforms that, that, 
uh, enable paradigm shifts in our understanding of the universe. And Chandra is is one of those greatest, truly greatest ones. And as as Megan mentioned, we, we are uh, designing the next great observatory, um, which we hope will be the Lynx X-ray Observatory, um, orders of magnitude more powerful than Chandra across multiple dimensions, but really forged in the legacy of Chandra. So it will it will inherit Chandra's legacy and bring it forward quite literally into the next century. Um, so you can visit our website, uh, www.lynxobservatory.com. Org. You can read our 400-page report, or you can watch our beautiful movies that we've put together. But really, Lynx is forged in the legacy of Chandra. Um, so Chandra's, trust me, it it has another more than decade of hydrazine aboard, so it could, it could last hopefully for another decade of discovery, possibly even more. Um, but but Lynx is designed to carry Chandra's legacy forward through the late 2030s, through the 2060s, and even beyond that. Well, we wish it many more to well, come. And um uh, just yeah thank you guys again for coming on because we've been dying to talk about this subject and we know that our listeners have been asking us the same too so thank you and we wish you all a, a merry christmas you too thanks for having, thanks for having us, having us. and good election today <laughs> it is yeah. <laughs> yeah we get told off when yeah. we talk about politics so um <laughs> don't, yeah. don't bring it all down Sorry, Dan. <laughs> happy, uh, holidays. Thanks, everyone. happy <laughs> <laughs> thank you guys bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. take care thank you very bye. much the Interplanetary Podcast is alive! Jamie, I really enjoyed that interview with those guys. Matt, how much fun was that? It was really, really fun. I, I, I really want to meet them. I genuinely really want to meet those I three. I do. And I think we should all meet up for a nice glass of something cold. Kimberly, Megan and Grant, thank you. Uh, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Talking of Merry Christmas, Jamie, shall we let the Spodcats yeah. get on with their Christmas? Ready for They our... don't want to hear this. They've no. got mince pies to eat. Go and get your mince pies. Spend some time with your family. Uh, merry, merry, merry seasonal greetings to you all. Yes. And a... Merry Christmas from the Interplanetary Podcast and team. Sp- That's uh, myself and Matthew. Yeah. We thank you for all your support. And especially the Spodcats, every single one of you from every single level, you've made this whole year possible. Thank you very much. You are absolute geniuses. Um, so, yeah, have a great one. Look after yourself. Be kind. Drink way too much and eat way too much. And we'll see you in the new year. The poor old Starliner. See, we'll see what yeah. happened. That's not looking good. You'll see in the middle of my Helen Sharman interview, Jamie, that I dropped in to see what was happening and it all looked good when we dropped in. So Helen Sharman interview in between Christmas and New Year. Check it out. It's an absolute blinder. Uh, unfortunately, Jamie wasn't there, but uh, I, I managed to, to hold the ship, Jamie, without you. You held the ship. I have no doubt. To be honest, he- he- Helen would probably make a better co-host, but that's 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 a conversation for another time. <laughs> <laughs> There's no probably about it. Definitely. <laughs> right. Yeah. Let's let them get on. Happy, have a me- Bye, guys. Me- merry, merry seasonal greetings, everyone, all around the world, from San Francisco to Canberra, Australia. Tidings and joy. Bye-bye.